Hello and welcome to the Robert A. Heinlein Book Club. Um, and in this episode, I'm going to talk about Jerry Was a Man, uh, originally published in Thrilling Wonder Stories in October of 1947. And uh, this is a really um, amazing tale. In fact, I think his short stories from 1947 as a group all hold up. Um, at least I haven't read all of them yet, but there's none that I don't think are, are kind of stand out and memorable. That, that's not true of all the stories we've come across. And it's not really true of Rocket Ship Galileo in some ways. I mean, of course, that's memorable because it's his first like novel published as, as a book. Um, and, and not serially and, and, and astounding. Um, but this story um, really, I think, even stands out among those. Now, I know what you might be thinking. Yeah, this is just, this has been done on Star Trek. It's like, yeah, it's, it was done by Asimov and the iRobot stuff. Um, yeah, this question of what is a man, and, and what is a human being, and where do our rights extend to? But it's an important question, and it was an important question the world was grappling with in the post-war era, and I think um, Heinlein has probably the best answer Uh possible on this question which is it's not really for us to decide where that line is and at the very least we should extend humanity as broadly as i mean unless there's a good reason to limit it we shouldn't we we should uh you know keep that moral boundary as as, as broad as possible err on the side of 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 caution I suppose um, there's no good reason to exclude any group from from humanity if if we share characteristics with them, right? And I think this might lead us to a different relationship with environment in general, but but it should certainly, hopefully, lead us to a a certain relationship to each other, regardless of their their status or their class or or their race or their gender or whatever. So it's a very liberal argument that's given here, but I think uh, this is an aspect where we should be as liberal as possible. And I think um, this was the solution of the UN ultimately when they were coming up with the UN Declaration of Human Rights. They just said, we're going to give these to everybody. We're going to grant them to everyone. Now, yeah, it's, it's messy. How it's actually worked out is not clear. States are not going to grant rights to everyone equally in a fair way. And it's not clear how we're going to address that, right? You know, outside of military force, what can be done, right? I'm, I'm not sure there's a clear solution to that under the current system we have, but uh, I'm on the side of the UN Declaration of Rights being one of the great achievements of, of, of the last century and something we should defend, in, you know, because until there's anything better, a better uh, rubric for for uh, protecting a, a basic standard of what it means to be a human. I, I can't think of that. This and in the, in the, in the Convention on the Children, of course. Those two sort of go together. 
So, like, I, I called out Star Trek before because if you're a Star Trek fan at all, and even if you're not, you probably know about the the story, the measure of the the, the episode, the measure of the man, where Data is retransferred to the Daystrom Institute to be um, basically the subject of experiments that would result in the creation of of new androids, and he uh, Data did not trust those uh, experiments, so he. He, he wasn't confident in their in the scientists' progress on the basic research, so he wanted to not do that. But he he the argument that came down from Starfleet was he's not a person, he's property of Starfleet, and therefore they can do what he want with them. And then he chooses to resign from Starfleet, and even then they say, well, he's not proper, he's property, so he doesn't have that choice to even resign. And then this becomes a classic Star Trek court case. And then it, it ends, obviously, in, in, in a happy ending. Uh, I don't know if that's very realistic, but for the serial storytelling, or the episodic storytelling, sorry, of Star Trek, um, they probably could have done it differently if they were telling the story serially. But since they're telling it episodically, they need Data back in his chair for the next episode. So he is deemed to be a, um, a person with rights, and that, of course, is a very crucial uh, episode in Star Trek and one of, it, one of the more memorable ones and, and one of the best ones of the early Star Trek The Next Generation run. And, of course, you probably also know of the... I forget the name of the story. I know there was an Outer Limits adaptation of it and it was an Asimov story somewhere. It might be iRobot. You know, it might just be that story, but it's the one where the robot um, um, is put on trial right for the killing of his master and then the question about his humanity comes up can can he even put on beyond put on trial did he have a right to defend himself could he just be summarily did he have a right to a trial i think that was the issue in that that case and it had kind of a similar outcome there so this though this is a better story than both of those because it's not dealing with robots it's dealing with a much more complicated question uh, on two levels one is we have creatures who are of lower intelligence than humans that are basically like somewhere between animals who's another today and humans um so we have through genetic engineering ape men have been created right so they are genetically engineered apes that are programmed to be smarter for to be a workforce so they're not animals even though i think heinlein here could extend this argument to many animals dolphins many primates Right, um, but we see human-like behavior in many animals, family behavior, um, emotional bonds. There is work, research done on the emotional life of animals. Obviously, they suffer. So I think the utilitarian calculus on on this is, is clear that some rights need to be extended to animals. And thankfully, some countries do establish some degree, but ultimately not a right to life. Uh, which is the issue in this story. So that's one. The other part of it is that they are the creation. They're the intellectual, intellectual property of corporations. And it was an early story of Heinlein's, Let There Be Life, where he seemed to uh, cast a lot of doubt on the necessity of intellectual property. Or, or he sees intellectual property as problematic in some way. He doesn't really have a systematic argument like he does in some other areas of his work on this. Although here we see that same kind of visceral disgust with this idea of intellectual property um, and how it's used. Because here these are 
genetic creations, adaptations that are done by uh, through a process called plastobiology, which is essentially like grafting DNA to create anything one wants in a generation or two. And it becomes a, a plaything of of the of the ruling class. So there's a class dimension in the story too, which we'll certainly get to if I have time. Um, but um, ultimately, these ape men. What's their name? They have. They actually have a name um, given. Let me make sure I get it. I didn't write it down. Uh, they're called anthropoids. Um, that's better than ape man, I suppose. But ape man is maybe more to the a little more memorable, I suppose. But anthropoid is what they're called, and they basically are a subject working class that this corporation um, creates, um, and they become basically labor contractors. So this company makes two things primarily, and it's like a multi-billion dollar company. There are millions and millions of these workers that they create, genetically engineered, subhuman in some degree workers who are the property of the company, but they're leased out to others um, as a workforce. So a factory needs temp workers. You don't go to the corner to find the local, uh, like the immigrants lined up or the people who can't pay their mortgage lined up for work at 5 a.m. I've done that, by the way. Uh, get up at 5 for the labor-ready um, jobs. You can just call this company um, and they will send you these eight men, these anthropoids who will do the job for you. And they have various skills that are programmed into them. So there's always a guy who can do your job. Uh, great. The other thing they make is custom animals for people. So our, our one of our characters here wants a Pegasus. The problem is you can't really make a Pegasus. This is kind of a subplot in the story. It's, it's prominent in the early part of the tale until you find out you're actually dealing with like fundamental moral issues, profoundly uh, complex moral issues. Um, or maybe not that complex. Maybe it's kind of simple. For my, for my, in my mind, it's kind of simple. I think Heinlein did find it as uh, an area that had to be fought for and won, and I, and I think it still is to a certain degree. There, there is many people who are denied their basic um, humanity uh, under the law in the courts or, or, or whatever. But he, the story starts out, the guy just wants a Pegasus because he's a rich guy and he wants a Pegasus. And, and the problem is like actually making a Pegasus that can fly, the, the physics don't work out. So like we could kind of do it. It could either be really small or have like an 80 foot wingspan and be really not look quite like a horse. But we could do it. It would cost you a couple million. Or we could just give you like put wings on a horse and it would be like a picture of a Pegasus. It would look like the Pegasus in Greek mythology, but... He couldn't really fly it. Which do you want? He eventually gets talked down to that more uh, picturesque um, example. We have uh, tiny little elephants that can write. We have... Um, he eventually at one point says, we could, I could make a living chair or a living table that would eat food and, and live and die if you wanted me to do that. So that's how the story sort of begins. And then it it switches when we we actually are told about the contract labors really early on the phoenix breeding ranch controlled genetics licensed labor contractors one of our characters sees this right away but it's not really brought up for a few pages um and they're like wow this is what the story is really about um so i'm not going to taste say too much more about the genetic engineering and i want to focus on the plot of the labor contractors 
So our main character here, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Bronson Van Vogel, Mrs. Bronson Van Vogel is the main instigator of the action here. She, they're there to buy this Pegasus, um, but she sees the um, labor contractors. Um, really, the contractors are actually the company. The, the labor itself is, is, are, are essentially just slaves. They're, chat, they're called chattel in the story. They're the, literally the property of this company. Um, and I and definitely Heinlein has issues with this idea of a corporation being a person. He, he calls that out several times in this story in a not a very nice way. He thinks it's very, very hypocritical for a company to claim humanity and then to own literally other people. In fact, let me just say this. I'm going to forgive Heinlein for uh, the ending of Logic of Empire because he wrote this story. He learned his lesson. As you recall, my problem with the, the ending of Logic Vampire was the the subtle implication that there is like that essentially slave narratives are a bit of propaganda or overly exaggerated for to get the emotional support of, of northerners. He doesn't quite say that, but that's in the metaphor context of the story, that's what we're sort of getting. And I was really bothered by that. But I'm gonna forgive him for it at this point because this story is so good and gets right to the point. So anyways, our main character, um, this this woman who's like the richest woman in the world, she's there to buy this $2 million Pegasus. And she sees about these, these workers, these anthropoids. And she meets one named Jerry. And, you know, he's old, can't see that well, likes to smoke cigarettes. He's got all the flaws of an aging human being. And she's informed that he's kind of retired and her impression of retirement is that okay these are the these are chattel these are slaves so they'll just sort of be put into a old folks home at the company and and live out their lives there and no then she's told no they're, they're just liquidated they're just murdered they're just killed they don't use that term they use this term liquidated but that's essentially what happens they are just uh um killed humanely obviously they're not they're not tortured um, but they're too old to work. They're, they're weak. They're aging. They have health problems. They can't see. Whatever they were made to do, they can't do it that well anymore. So the company just gets rid of them. And they have every right to do this because companies are people and these people are chapel, chattel. This horrifies her. And then the company rep that she's talking to is like, okay, well, they want to keep good because she owns some of the stock in this company too. She... She says, you got to stop doing this. And he's like, well, you don't own, you know, the majority of the shareholders don't agree with you. But we'll give you Jerry. Well, we won't really give you Jerry. We'll, we'll you know, we'll just let you kind of have him until he dies of natural causes or whatever. You can keep him as sort of a pet, as sort of a gift from us to you. This is not good enough for her. And she basically calls her lawyer and says, I don't care if it costs every last time I have. You buy 51% of the stock in this company so I can put an end to this. Bravo. Wonderful. A wonderful moral commitment. No ambiguity. Very black and white moral decision. Perfectly done. Right? No amount of money is worth these people's lives, however contingent they might be. I mean, there's not. I can't think of a more heroic character we've been given in in, in Heinlein stories. Um, 
I urge you to read this one. If you, if you have problems with Heinlein, and there's tons to be had, I mean, this story, even though it's, it's a little, we've seen this before, but I, I still think this is done so well in this story. I, I really think you should read it because it's, it really, it really did, it did speak to me, at least very, very powerfully. Um, she gets a call from the lawyer the next day. Or something. They're like, well, they they're on to us. They're on to you trying to buy the company. So so we can't get all the stocks. All the stocks locked down. And so she turns to her other options. She turns to lobbying for political change, for a change in the laws. Um, and she eventually takes it to court, and she makes it a, a legal issue. And that's where we end up with the, like the Star Trek sort of court case scene. And through this story, we also get to know a little bit about Jerry. Not much, but. Heinlein does not make him a perfect person. He is not that smart. He is purposely for, for Heinlein. He doesn't make him an equal of, of the human beings around them. There's something different about him. He is contingent in some way. He is genetically engineered for one purpose. And anything beyond that, he's not really excelled at because that's not his purpose. Like I think that's true of animals. Like no animal is the equal of the human being in every way, but they all we all share something with them, not just DNA. We share certain experiences and sensory experiences, and maybe we all dream. Maybe we have certain feelings of pleasure and pain. And where who are we to draw a line at what what is what makes one human or not? All right, so we end up in the court after learning a little bit about Jerry, learning a little bit about our characters, and we get the typical back and forth. Now, the arguments uh, being made are quite, it's quite well done here, I think. The, the, the court case aspects of the story are, are I don't want to say perfectly done, but, but realistically done. So the lawyer, um, on behalf of Jerry's claim of humanity, makes doesn't try to make a case of pure equality in all things just trying to say you should there there is a basic humanity here and some protection of rights the corporation just rests their arguments seem to rest on property law and 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 and, and intellectual property which heinlein does just doesn't take very seriously here at all um now ultimately we get a scene where jerry's put on the stand and the question is, like, can he even swear to tell the truth? Is he even intellectually capable of doing that? And and they, there's a little trick involved. That's another, I think, brilliant part of Heinlein's storytelling here is he doesn't have it just a straight up, you know, do you know what right and wrong is? And, then, and they actually asked him, like, will you lie for a cigarette? Because he's like this, an addict. Um, and he says, no, I won't lie. Like, he's like, how many fingers am I holding up? I'll, I'll give you a cigarette if you say there's six. And he says, no, I'll say five. And it seems he's honest at the point this convinces the judge that he can swear to tell the truth. But it turns out they bribed him with like like a thousand, like a carton of cigarettes if he said, held out on, on the stand on this issue. So it was some shenanigans behind the scenes, but it was in the purpose of a, of a greater good, I think. Um, so here's what he says on that. Um, Pomfrey, um, this was the lawyer for, for Jerry and um, our protagonist. Pomfrey let them have it while they were still groggy. 
What is a man? A collection of living cells and tissues? A legal fiction like this corporate person that would take poor Jerry's life? No, a man is none of these things. A man is a collection of hopes and fears, of human longing, of aspirations greater than himself, more than the clay from which he came, less than the creator, which has lifted him up from the clay. Jerry had been taken from his jungle and made something more than the poor creatures who are his ancestors, even as you and I. We ask that this court recognize this manhood. Um, now, the final part of the case is to bring in a Martian. And the Martian is put on the stand, and the Martian says, is asked, are you a man? And he says, well, under the agreement between Earth and Mars, I am a man. You know, and that, that was something worked out between Mars and, and Earth, just as a legal convenience, right? Because, but... The Martian also says, like, I'm vastly superior to all of you in intellectual capacity and other things. Um, but legally, I'm a man. And this sort of almost clinches the argument. Heinlein could have just ended it there. And everyone says, oh, that, that ends it. If Martians are clearly more intelligent, have different experiences and can be de deemed, hum you know, men under the law, then why can't someone who's lesser otherwise you take away humanity from normal human beings right if you say only the most superior species or, or most intelligent entities are are men under the law then you're you can exclude anyone ultimately right that could end it uh the argument but it doesn't because um we get this wonderful scene at the end where He's basically asked, um, to demonstrate his manhood in, in an emotional sense. And here's what we get. Here's how the story ends. Pomfrey visibly gathered his toga around him. We ask not for a cold charity from this corporation, but for a matter of justice of the court. We ask that Jerry's humanity be established as a matter of law. Not to him to vote, nor to hold property, nor to be relieved of special police regulations appropriate to his group. But we do ask that he be a judged at least as human as the aquarium monstrosity just removed from this courtroom. The judge turned to Jerry. Is that what you want, Jerry? Jerry looked uneasily at Pomfrey and then said, Okay, boss. Come up to the chair. One moment, the opposition chief counsel seemed flurried. I ask that the court to consider that a, that a ruling in this matter may affect a long-established commercial practice necessary to the economic life of objection. Pomfrey was at his feet bristling. Never have I heard a more outrageous attempt to prejudice a decision. My esteemed colleague might as well ask the court to decide a murder case from political considerations. I protest. Never mind, said the court. The suggestion will be ignored. Proceed as with your witness. Pomfrey bowed. We are exploring the meaning of this strange thing called manhood. We have seen that it is not a matter of shape, nor race, nor planet of birth, nor an acuteness of mind. Truly, it cannot be defined, yet it may be experienced. It can reach from heart to heart, from spirit to spirit. He turned to Jerry. Jerry, will you sing your new song for the judge? Sure, Mike. Jerry looked up easily up at the whirling cameras, the mics and the mics, then cleared his throat. Way down upon the Swanee River, far, far away, there's where my heart is turning ever. The applause scared him out of his wits. The banging of the gavel frightened him still more, but it mattered not. 
The issue is no longer in doubt. Jerry was a man. And that's how the story ends with our anthropoid singing. Um, singing Old Folks at Home, which, of course, is a song, a minstrel song, a song um, that harkens back to the complex cultural lines between white and black America, a song rooted in the experience of slaves and co-opted by, by white performers, but fully American. And it's a good choice, I think, to try to uh, pull at your heartstrings a little bit. Now, that was set up earlier in the story that he had learned that song. Um, so I guess that's, that's enough to say about um, Jerry was a man. A straightforward story. When we think about Philip Dick's endless hand-wringing about what is human, this is the refreshing, clear, ethically defensible um, answer to that question, what is what is a human being? And, I, and I'm really, like, moved by this story and, and I and I think it's uh, one of his best that I've, I've read simple straightforward um, impactful at every like aspect of the story even the genetic engineering stuff early in the in the story is set up really well where we see like the genetic legacy of humanity being a plaything of, of the ruling class I mean I didn't really get into that that much but but it's there it's like at the heart of the story too but it's overshadowed by this uh, very uh, emotional story of, 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 of Jerry's liberation and the liberation of, of presumably millions of other people who are who are freed by this the decision of the court um, here Jerry being a man is, is, is not just for Jerry it's for millions of others essentially slaves of, of corporate power So there we have it. We're we're starting our stories in 1947 with 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 a banger, but I think there's some really other good ones here. Um, the stories he wrote for Saturday Evening Post are good on family. Um, we got uh, a nice little short one. Columbus was a dope, which is just a nice little twist story, I suppose. Um, yeah, we got good stuff coming up. I'm gonna, I think we're going to have fun for the next uh, couple weeks as we explore the, the stories of 1947. Um, kind of, kind of good and inspiring after the. The, the experience of. Uh, of rocket ship Galileo, so I don't know which one I'll do next. Maybe I'll just I'll I'll do it's great to be back and space jockey the two Saturday evening posts. They kind of go together. They're both about the moon. They're both about. Uh, they're both. Uh, they're both published in Saturday Evening Post. Both future history stories. So um, maybe we'll do those and the Green Hills of Earth, kind of as a as a little sequence. Um, but that's what's going ahead. So, anyways, I I hope you do check out Jerry was a man. If if you've missed it, it's it's really a wonderful story. I think. So uh, that's all for now. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.